All right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started back, if we can. Just so I don't forget to do this at the very end, um, could, I, could I just ask you to join me in thanking um, Hatfield and Natasha and the folks who have run the sound back here, who have facilitated this space for us and the lovely meals and all of this stuff. Can we just say thank you to them for hosting us this week? It has really been great. Thank you very much for, uh, for all of your help in, in facilitating this. I'm sorry? Orit? Oh, yes, Orit. I'm sorry. Yes, Orit's back there. I'm sorry I didn't name you, but, but she was actually in touch with me to kind of facilitate all of the sound and, and all this kind of stuff. Thank you very, very much. So those applause all kind of go to you too. Um, and also, uh, Truth Walk, um, it is not easy to put on conferences. And uh, these guys are kind of doing this on a shoestring in, in one sense. I mean, they're trying to, to marshal their own resources and all this. So can we just say thank you to Michael and to the guys at Truth Walk for this initiative, all right? And uh, just so that I can, can be sure to say this before we wrap up, uh, too, I just want to say thank you for having me this week. Um, do pray for us as we're really moving into a new phase of ministry that that we would be filled with the Spirit. Really, it would mean so much to us if we knew you were praying for us to be filled with the Spirit, uh, that God would use the ministry that we're doing to effectively have an impact on the students, not just as intellectual exercise of academics, but, but really a kind of a mentoring and life change. If you would um, pray for us in that way, we really would deeply, deeply appreciate it uh, in this kind of new phase of ministry, but I, I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here in South Africa and see what the Lord is doing uh, here, and uh, just want to say that we will pray for you, and if the Lord allows it, we would love to come back and, and be with you here in South Africa again, uh, if the Lord gives us the opportunity to do that, but if not, just know that we think about you, and we will pray for you, and we want to encourage you in the good work that God is doing here. So it's been a delight. You, I said to somebody, I mean this with all my heart, you're, you're like the best kind of audience I can imagine for this kind of thing because you are sincere, you're deeply committed to Christ in the church, you're asking fantastic questions, uh, you're excited about the Word of God. I mean, it's just, it's just a very easy thing to do in that sense. So deeply appreciate it. And, um, and we need to wrap up because we only have a little bit of time left. So let's, uh, let's kind of move toward taking a look here um, at what, where Paul goes from here. To, to introduce this part, I want to give you a quote from Augustine. Um, Augustine said, there are two kinds of pastors, two kinds of pastors, and he says this, there are some who occupy the pastoral chair in order to care for the flock of Christ but there are others who sit in it to gratify themselves by temporal honors and worldly advantages. These are the two kinds of pastors, some dying and some being born, who must needs continue in the Catholic Church, he means the universal church there itself, until the end of the world and the judgment of the Lord. In other words, he said, from now on, it's going to be normal that you have these two kinds of pastors, some who are sincere in serving Christ and some who are serving themselves. If there were such men in the times of the apostles, whom the apostle lamented as false brothers when he said perils from false brothers, 
yet whom he did not proudly dismiss, but bore with them and tolerated them, how much more likely is it that there should be such men in our times? Uh, in other words, he's saying, you know, if, if Paul had these, these problems, why would we think that we would be any different? It's going to be a time of, of uh, challenge as we at times face the false, um, the false brothers. Now, we, we saw last time Paul's um, escape from Damascus. We moved to this really interesting passage on him being snatched up to the third heaven, and, um, and he leads from that into uh, talking about his thorn in the flesh. So let's take a look at, at these parts here, at chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 read, reads like this, "'It is necessary to continue boasting, although, although it is not helpful. Nevertheless, I will move on to visions and revelations from the Lord.'" I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was snatched up to the third heaven. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was snatched up into paradise and heard words too sacred to tell, words which a person is not permitted to speak. I will boast on behalf of such a person, but I will not boast on my own behalf except with regard to weakness. Now, if I want to boast, I will not be acting foolishly, for I will be telling the truth. In other words, if he, he said, if I wanted to brag on all this, you know, this vision that I had, he is speaking about himself, uh, he said, it would be truthful, wouldn't be inappropriate for me to do that, but I am refraining from doing so in order that a certain person, that's the false teachers, may not evaluate me beyond what he sees in me, <coughs> excuse me, or anything he hears from me. Now, Paul is actually here in terms of the, the purpose of this section. Let me tell you the purpose and the process here because it is it's very important to understand what he's doing. The purpose of him raising the issue of the visions he had seen is he is actually using these as a transition to talking about his thorn in the flesh. He is actually, in terms of process, using another rhetorical strategy where um, if, a, if a speaker wanted to keep attention focused on the issue rather than himself, he would describe himself in the third person. I knew a certain person. It would be ambiguous. It would be like he was referring to somebody else. He obviously here is speaking about himself. Because he goes on and says, if I wanted to brag in this regard, I could. But I don't want these false teachers to judge me on the basis of supernatural, wowy kind of stuff. I want them to, you know, stay with my integrity, with my form of ministry, and, and my weakness, I mean, that's the point. Notice the repetition of the word weakness all through this. He's saying, I could talk about the most awesome strength I have, which is that by God's grace, I was brought into the very presence of God, but that's not going to be my focus. And so he's, he's uh, in terms of the purpose of raising the whole thing about the visions, the purpose was really to get to the, his weakness. 
which was the thorn in the flesh. Now, there, there are interesting questions about the whole thing of the visions here. So let me, let me just say a word about it because um, I know some of you have questions about this. So let me just say a word about it. Visions involve the intersection of heaven and earth. This is a part in broader Jewish theology and thinking of the day, uh, something that's referred to apocalyptic. And a lot of studies been done the last 40, 50 years that apocalyptic in the world at that time was not primarily about the end of time, it was about the breaking of heaven into earth. And often the breaking of heaven into earth involved light, like think of Paul's Damascus Road experience or the transfiguration. When heaven breaks into earth, you have the shining of light, you have heavenly voices speaking. But the other type of apocalyptic was not just the breaking into earth, it was the taking of a person into heaven. So in broader Judaism, you have some works that talk about this kind of heavenly journey where somebody was caught up into the heavenly sphere. And so um, you have an, examples of the earthly side of this, like with the appearance of angelic beings and the Damascus Road and things like that. But now Paul's talking about himself being caught up into the heavenly realm and revelations means, revelation has to do with some kind of disclosure. So if you'd come back from lunch and, and I had, um, you know, something up here on this desk and there was a blanket over it and it was kind of wiggling and you heard a little noise every now and then and uh, you, were, you were thinking, what is that? He's doing some kind of illustration, but I wonder what's under there. And I pulled that off and Winston... The dog that Michael has was under there, and he was slobbering on the desk and all this kind of thing because he's just a big teddy bear. And, um, and that's a revelation. I would be revealing that. Well, he says that the visions that he had involved revelation of God opening up things to him. Now, think about this, that, that could you have an any more powerful tool to say, I'm superior to these false teachers then Paul saying, I've been in the presence of the Lord, and let me tell you exactly what God says about me in this situation. Now again, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think about people in the world today who brag and they say the basis for their authority, apostolic or whatever, is because they've had these revelations from the Lord and power and all this kind of stuff. Paul says, I'm, I'm, not, go I'm not going there. I'm going to brag about my weakness. And so he brings up the whole thing about visions and revelation in order to get to um, the thorn in the flesh. But he does say that he was caught up into paradise. He doesn't really know how to evaluate. He says, was I in the flesh? Was I out of the flesh? I really don't know. Only God knows. I think it means that he... He was caught up into the presence of God. The third heaven is a way in Judaism of the day of talking about the highest heaven, the place of God's throne. And so he's, he's using language here that the Jews could speak about going into the heavenly holy of holies, in other words. And Paul says, I really don't know exactly what happened there, but I heard words not permitted to speak. He was not allowed to reveal the words 
that had been spoken to him, but God spoke to him. That's really interesting. You know, don't you have all kinds of things in the Scripture that you just can't wait to talk to Paul and say, what in the world were you talking about? Can you tell me now, Paul, what those words were? You know, or Jesus, what would you say to, you know, what was going on with that? But his whole point of going there and all this thing of being snatched up in paradise and the third heaven is really to get to what he wants to boast about, and that is his weakness. In verse 5. Look at uh, verses 6 and following. Look at verses 5 and 6, really, uh, where he says, I'm only going to boast in my weaknesses. Um, I, I boast, and I, I will be telling the truth how I do that, but I'm refraining from doing so in order not to be evaluated just on, you know, on the same kind of terms that these guys are doing. Now look at verse 7. Paul's thorn in the flesh. And due to the extraordinary character of the revelations, therefore, so that I might not become consumed with self-importance, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, in order that it might beat me so that I might not become consumed with self-importance. You don't get any more clear than that. I'm going to brag about this. God gave me a thorn in the flesh so that I would not be consumed with self-importance. Part of what we experience when we are facing hardships in the course of ministry is God is even turning those inside out to give us perspective on ourselves so that we don't get consumed with self-importance. The, the term thorn here is what the way this is normally rendered in English translations. It could be used to refer to something in the ancient world that was sharp or pointed like a splinter. You get a splinter in your finger or even a stake. But against the backdrop of the Septuagint, the translation of thorn seems appropriate. In the Septuagint, the image speaks of forms of opposition in places like Numbers 33:55 or Hosea 2:6. Something incessantly painful and thus irritating and vexing. Paul defines this thorn as in the flesh, probably. Um, you know, just speaking about something that really was hard on him physically. Paul says the reason for the thorn is so that he will not be consumed with self-importance, literally that he would not exalt himself. He would not think more highly of himself than he should. Several things about the thorn here. It was for that purpose... It was given to Paul by the Lord. Third, it was a thorn in the flesh. Fourth, it was a messenger of Satan. So in somehow, Satan's involved in the mix here. It beat him repeatedly, verse uh, number five. And then finally, Paul pleads three times that it would be taken away. The three times, the repetition there is Paul meant I... I went and I pleaded with the Lord with all I had to take this away from me. Now, the question is, what is the thorn? 
And again, this is a big debated thing in scholarship. What was Paul's thorn? Let me give you three options that scholars have suggested, and I'll tell you why I choose the third. First of all, some have suggested this was physical illness of some kind. Um, Scholars have said that Paul had malaria, epilepsy, severe headaches. Tertullian suggested that. That he had an eye disease in line with um, Galatians 4, 13 through 15. There's reasons for thinking that that's not really what is going on there, according to Craig Keener. Um, Someone has said that he had a speech impediment, maybe a socially debilitating disease or disfigurement, or some unspecified personal illness. So, you know, scholars have been all over the map in terms of saying that Paul's thorn in the flesh was some some kind of physical illness. I don't think that is really the best, I don't think those are the best options, and I'll explain why in just a minute. A second suggestion on the thorn is that he fa- he's facing some kind of psychological malady, some kind of psychological malady. Uh, suggestions have been anxiety disorders, pangs of conscience over persecuting the church, deep suffering over his ineffectiveness in reaching the Jews with the gospel, depression, even sexual temptation. Um, so you can look in uh, Margaret Thrall's commentary, and she kind of details the arguments in that regard. Again, I don't think um, that's the kind of thing Paul is dealing with. I think that what Paul is describing as his thorn in the flesh was persecution, relentless opposition, conflict with the Judaizers, opponents from the Gentile world, opposition in general, and including the opponents in Corinth. Um, So the idea that this is uh, referring to the opponents, I would primarily argue contextually from the context itself because in in the conclusion to the fool's speech in verse 10, which we'll see in just a minute. He says, For this reason, I'm delighted in weaknesses, in indignities, in crises, in persecutions, and troubles for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So it sounds to me like his summary statement there in verse 10 is describing all of these types of persecution he has been facing. And I think that is his thorn in the flesh. Chrysostom, John Chrysostom states this, What Paul means by the thorn in the flesh, is that God would not allow the preaching of the gospel to go forward so that his proud thoughts might be checked. Instead, Paul was attacked by adversaries like Alexander the coppersmith, the party of um, these false teachers, and all the opponents of the word. These were the messengers of Satan. And then the similar um, interpretation is taken by others. Think about the key principle here for us. You know, you you look at this awesome passage, this this beautiful passage, and listen to what it says. I pleaded with the Lord three times. Think about how hard it would be for this relentless persecution to be just hitting you all the time. I mean, just physically, emotionally. You know, for Paul to be beaten up yet again and left in a cold prison cell without adequate clothing and without a supper. 
You know, I mean, think about how hard that would be to just face that over and over, especially as you got older. It'd be really, really tough. And so Paul says this in verse 9, that God's answer to this plea for relief was, my grace is entirely sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ, I've translated this as, might take up residence on me. It's actually a cognate of the, of the verb having to do with tabernacled. You could tra- translate this as, so that the power of God would tabernacle on me. I will be content with my weaknesses. It, it is so terribly counterintuitive to us. And when you're lying in bed at night, in the middle of the night, awake, and can't understand why you can't go to sleep and that kind of thing, and you're thinking, man, I'm really going to be impressive tomorrow. And the Spirit comes and says, my power is perfected in weakness. My grace is enough for you. That word sufficient means it's enough. Uh, Pat had a lovely lady who was a friend of hers in Canada that she, she lived with some 35 years ago, Margaret, and she had this, this, she was from the Isle of Man, right? Or somewhere. She was from Glasgow, and, he, and her husband was from the Isle of Man. And uh, Margaret used to say about food, she said, enough is as good as a feast. And I love that. And what, what the Lord is saying here to Paul is, look, Paul, my grace is enough. You don't really need relief the way you think you need relief. You need my grace. And my grace is enough. The principle is, of course, that at times in our profound weakness, profound weakness, that God somehow turns that inside out and makes it powerful in the cause of the gospel. I love the story about John Stott. John Stott had ministry here in South Africa, didn't he? At least through his writings. Anglican, great Anglican evangelical from, from the UK, from England. 1958, uh, Stott led a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. He received word of his father's death the day before the final meeting and at the same time was beginning to lose his voice. He describes the final day of outreach as follows. He says, It was already late afternoon within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission, so I didn't feel I could back away at that time. I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather around me. I asked one of them to read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A student read these verses, and then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my own experience. When the time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow ways from Matthew 7. I had to get within a half an inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. And then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response larger than any other meeting during the mission as students came flocking forward. 
Reflecting on the impact of that experience, Stott notes, I've been back to Australia about 10 times since 1958, and on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that? <laughs> Sorry. Do you remember that final meeting in the university, in the Great Hall? And he said, I responded, I jolly well do. Well, they say I was converted that night. And Stock concludes, the Holy Spirit takes our human words spoken in great weakness and frailty. And he carries them home with power to the mind, the heart, the conscience, and the will of the hearers in such a way that they see and they believe. So human weakness, human weakness often comes as the vehicle for the effectiveness of the gospel. So what Paul is doing here as he comes to the climactic moment in the fool's speech is he magnifies, he magnifies his ministry as one that is broken and bruised for the sake of Christ and sets it over against these false teachers so that the Corinthians can choose well and the ones who need to come along can choose better as they turn away from the false teachers and turn to him. Now, I want to just read from here to the end of the letter, and I want you to notice the, uh, the way that he kind of wraps up here. And we're going to use this to kind of conclude our time together. In verse 11, we read this, I've made a fool of myself. You yourselves drove me to it. So, he says, look, I, I've made a fool of myself by bragging because I was driven to it by you. Actually, I should have been commended by you since I lack nothing in comparison to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. There's his perspective. The signs of an apostle were performed among you with the utmost endurance, yes, signs and wonders and miracles. In what way then were you treated worse than the other churches except that I myself did not burden you? And he's speaking about financially there. Forgive me for this injustice. Pay attention. I'm ready to make this third trip to you, and I will not be a burden, for I want you yourselves, not your possessions. Children ought not to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will be more than happy to spend and be spent for your soul's sake if I love you more, am I to be loved less? So be it. I haven't burdened you with your obligation to me, but rather, devious me, I bamboozled you by fraud. He's being sarcastic there again. Did I cheat you through any of the men I sent to you? I encouraged Titus to visit you, and I sent the brother with him. Titus didn't cheat you, did he? Did we not walk, or did we not walk by the same spirit in the same footsteps? Have you been, excuse me, have you been thinking all this time that we are defending ourselves to you? No, we are speaking before God, there it is again, in Christ, and everything, dear friends, is for your edification. So what he's saying there is, he's saying, um, have I been defending myself? And he, he says, the reality is, I'm just telling you the straight up truth. I'm not trying to, to do anything else but just get you to look at the facts of the situation. 
And he says, um, verse 20, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I, f- I will find you not to be the sort of you I want you to be, and I myself will be found by you to be the sort of me you do not want me to be. <laughs> so I'm going to show up, and, and I'm not going to be what you're wanting, and you're not going to be what I'm wanting, and it's not going to be a good situation. I'm afraid that perhaps there might be dissension, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slanderous words, gossiping, swelled heads, and chaos. I'm also afraid that when I come, my God may make me ashamed again in my relationship with you and that I will grieve over many who have persisted in their previous patterns of sinning and have not repented in response to the uncleanness and sexual immorality and the rank promiscuity in which they participated." Now, keep in mind that all of this part here, which again is very harsh, is directed toward those house churches that have stayed on the outside of Paul's mission. He's been celebrating, like in chapter 7, the majority who have responded well, who've come over, they've reiterated their commitment to his mission. Now he's wrapping up and confronting and confronting these false teachers by, in the same breath here at the end, confronting those house churches that are aligned with the false teachers. And so um, he is saying, um, guys, accountability is coming. Look at chapter 13. This will be my third trip to you. Every accusation must be validated on the testimony of two or three witnesses. When I was there the second time, I warned those who sinned before and all the rest And though I am absent right now, I warn them again. Now that he's referring to the sorrowful visit as the second time he had come to see them. When I return, I will not spare you since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. Christ who is not weak in dealing with you, but demonstrates his power among you. For indeed, he was crucified as a result of weakness, but he lives as a result of God's power. For also, we ourselves are weak by virtue of our relationship with him but we will live with him as a result of God's power, which is manifested in dealing with you. Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. There it is. So as he brings it down and he's focusing on these, uh, you know, recalcitrant kind of uh, groups that are within the greater church there in Corinth, he is challenging them and saying, look, you're being aligned with these false teachers is really calling your Christianity into question. And it's time for you to to test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. He can can make proclamations about people's Christianity, but he's not going to give unqualified assurance. He's going to say, those of you who are not living in line with the gospel, then you need to do some spiritual examination to see if you really are believers. Test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not grasp the fact that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you don't qualify? Now, he's there not talking about people losing their salvation. He's talking about people evaluating whether they really do know Christ or not. All right? So he's not, he's not going to give unqualified kind of insurance. By the way, that kind of construction where he gives a proclamation of something, he, he says... This is true in terms of your relationship with God. Uh, and then he qualifies it, if, so-and-so. That's used seven times, I think, in the New Testament, if I'm remembering correctly. It always has to do with the person's relationship with God. 
And I think the reason for it is what I said earlier that you can't, you know, as a minister, you can't look into somebody's heart uh, that assurance of salvation is by perseverance in the things of God. Um, in my, in my um, heritage, church kind of um, background, the way that you were taught to, to give assurance of salvation was to say, back when you walked the aisle 15 years ago, were you sincere? God doesn't lie, does he? But see, what you're doing when you appeal to that as assurance of salvation, you're getting people subjectively to try to remember whether they were sincere in what they were doing when they made their commitment to Christ. Um, and, and really, that's not biblical. New Testament assurance of salvation has to do with persevering in the faith, with hanging in there in the gospel, right? And so um, you can't give unqualified assurance to people who are not living well for the gospel you need to challenge them to examine themselves and make sure that they are walking in the things of God and continuing in the things of God. So then, verse 6, And I hope that, I, that you will realize that we are not unqualified. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything evil, not so that we may be recognized as qualified, but in order that you might do what is right, even though we may seem to be unqualified. He's speaking again in terms of the stuff he's been dealing with, with the, um, the false teachers, their standards. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only in support of the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. Indeed, this is what we pray for, your restoration. This is why I'm writing these things while absent, so that when I am there with you, I may not have to deal harshly with you, acting according to the authority that the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, be restored, be encouraged, be of one mind, live in peace, and then the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people send their greetings. Uh, the one part of that I will explain is um, most, you know, your translations are probably reading, finally, brothers... Um, I would translate that brothers and sisters. The reason is because Adelphoi, which is a masculine form, uh, was used in the ancient world in religious context to refer to the men and women in the room in a religious context, not just Christian, but in other religious contexts. So a number of modern translations have um, moved to using brothers and sisters rather than just brothers because it's more accurate in terms of the context of the ancient world to hear that is speaking to all, all the men and the women in the room. The way I illustrate this with my students when I'm talking about translation theory is, um, you know, I'll, I'll say to them in our southern United States Christian context, will all the brothers in the room stand up? And so then all the, all the guys normally stand up at that point. And, um, and I say, well, then, the way you're hearing me use the word, the English word brothers, is the guys in the room, right? That's not what Adelphoi would have been heard as from people in the first century world. When they heard that Adelphoi word in a religious context of speaking about fellow believers, they would have heard it mean all the men and the women who are committed king Christians stand up, you know, that kind of idea. Does that make sense? All right. It's just an aspect of translation theory. All right, let's, uh, let's see if there are any final questions you have. Again, we, uh, you know, we, I told you from the beginning we weren't going to have time to do 
super detail through the whole book, but I think we did pretty well. You guys listened really well, and we made it through an awful lot of content this week, and you've been wonderfully patient in the process. Do you have any, um, any questions here in just the last few minutes, maybe something in that last bit that you, you just wanted a brief explanation on? Is there anything I can, can help you with? Or something as we wrap up our time together, um, anything that you would, you would like to share? We, didn't, we haven't really taken time for you to share you know, your main insights that you've gotten from this week, but we're just kind of out of time. So let's start here, and then we'll go back to Mike. So yeah, the brother here. Um, I don't want to go too off topic, but I'm just wondering, is it known how Paul's third um, visit to Corinth went? Was it sorrowful or was it um, no, that's encouraging? Great. That's a great question. I actually meant to say that. Thank you. Um, actually, what we seem to know from you know, the evidence in the New Testament is that it went well. Because he, you know, I, I, one, one evidence of it is that we actually have 2 Corinthians in our hands. You know, people didn't get it and tear it up and, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> we know from Acts that he goes on around to Corinth. And when he comes to Corinth, he spends three months there. He writes the book of Romans. <coughs> Excuse me. In his writing of the book of Romans, he actually celebrates the Corinthians' response to the gift to Jerusalem. So um, if I'm correct, then you have the writing of, of 2 Corinthians in late 54, then 55, in, and then toward the end of that trip, Paul writes Romans before he heads back to the land of Israel. And the reason why he writes Romans, he's not going to have time to go to Rome yet, and so he writes up his theology and sends it to them, and, and he heads back to, um, to the land of Israel. And so... Everything that we know from the book of Acts and uh, the fact that we have this book seems that, okay, it worked. It worked. Uh, they, they got it together. Um, they responded well. They got the collection together. So praise God that um, we end on a kind of harsh note here, but it, it seems that Paul's rhetorical strategy was effective. Yeah. All right, I'm sorry. My, Michael, you had... Was that, was that your question as well, or? Yeah. No, not at all. Just regarding the test yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Yeah. So, you know, as Christians, we, don't, we feel uncomfortable when we hear these warnings in the Scripture. Uh, so just on a practical level, you know, in terms of counseling, you know, how do we use these warnings to, to counsel Christians? Because it sounds like it's incorrect for us to give people assurance of their salvation. Because only the Lord ultimately knows their heart. So is it a matter of if they are persisting in a sinful lifestyle, that we would use that warning to say, look, you need to test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Instead of giving them perhaps a false assurance and saying, well, look, um, you're living in a sinful lifestyle, but you are still a Christian. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that uh, contextually, even with this example here in 2 Corinthians, it follows right on the heels of him saying, some of you are living in sexual immorality and you're doing these different kinds of things. It, it's really, we only deal with that when people have a pattern of life that is contrary to the teachings of Scripture. 
and, they, and they're living in the midst of that, and they're not responding to correction and challenge. And, and so that's when, you know, you challenge them to say, you know, one option here is that you may be manifesting that you don't know Christ because you don't really seem to be interested in things of God. I remember one case where John Piper was dealing with a person in his church who was living in adultery and, and just wouldn't repent of it, and they were just living as if it was okay. And Piper said, you know, to him, you, do under, you are an adulterer, and you do understand that, that the Scripture says that adulterers don't go to heaven. And the, guy said, and the guy said, are you saying I could lose my salvation? He said, I didn't say that. He said, what I said was, you're living in adultery, and the adulterers don't go to heaven according to the New Testament. So he's challenging them, saying, if you can live in this lifestyle, and, you know, then, then it is saying something terrifying about you. Now, the flip side of the coin is, what do you do when somebody comes to you who is sincere? They really want to be Christ's person. I do actually think that we can, in one sense, give them confidence and assurance in salvation by having them ground uh, what they're doing and who they are in the gospel. So what I do is I, I, I challenge them, believe the gospel, trust the gospel. Who are you trusting for your salvation? I'm trusting Christ alone. Well, then let's rejoice in that. You're trusting Christ. That is the good news that we don't have to trust in ourselves. Because most people who are really burdened and anxious about that are burdened and anxious because they're really trusting in their own works or their, their you know, you know, faith and, or something like that. And what we want to do is point them toward trusting Christ. So, I'm sorry. Did you have any, something else that you wanted to? That's okay? Okay. All right. Anybody else? Yeah, over here. Here, I'll, I'll bring, bring it over to you. Sorry. I mean, just along the lines of that question, um, it seems when Paul makes that statement, test yourselves, it's like the test would be obvious to them. Of, of what it is. Um, is. Is that test like, test um, the integrity of your life? Is it test your doctrine? Is it... Uh... Yes. <laughs> uh, and the reason I say that is because, remember, the Corinthians are not experiencing this letter the way we have, spread out over a week and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They would have heard it in one shot. And so what, what I think Paul is saying as he culminates with test yourself, seeing your faith is, the test is, are you aligned with me and my mission in the gospel? Or are you going to stay aligned with your immorality and these false teachers? I think that's really what he means by test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Okay, where are you in this situation? What are you going to go with here? His implication here at the end of the book is to say, for those of you who are going to continue to brace these idiots and you are going to continue rejecting me and my gospel, you are not in the faith. And I think, I think it, you know, it, you've, got, you've got to fit it in here as the culmination of all that he's been doing in this long letter. And that is saying, come on guys, come alongside authentic Christian ministry and the true gospel and and that kind of thing. And if you are going to stick with these, these, this false way of looking at, at the gospel and things, then you're not, you're not in the faith if you do that. Okay? Anybody else? Yeah, brother? Okay, all right. 
I'm getting my aerobic exercise for the day. Yeah. Uh, George, uh, my question is around the, I guess, the, the issue with actual... Uh, the theology, maybe, of the false prophets. I'm thinking when I when you hear these uh, these false prophets being uh, uh, Jews, I'm thinking, okay, maybe they are being legalistic. Like I'm thinking Galatians a lot on the background. But hearing uh, <clears throat> the issues that the the Corinthians are going through, which is their immorality and thing like that, it kind of to me does not it does not balance. And like I'm right. thinking, yeah, can you kind of explain probably what kind of teaching uh, uh, that these false prophets, false prophets will, be, will be teaching? If, if I could decisively say that, I would be really celebrated as a great scholar uh, because it's been a real debate. I mean, it has. Um, I think that they did have, uh, they were playing up their Jewish background in part, so it could be that they, it could be that they had some Judaizing tendencies and that kind of thing, but, it, but you're right. You've hit on the exact problem with that view, and that is that... Uh, they seem to be facilitating sexual immorality some in what, they're, in what they're teaching. It just seems that that's part of what may be going on here. Um, so what, what most have emphasized that we do know about them would be the cultural dynamics I've described, where they're all about money, they're all about public status, all of that kind of stuff. Somebody was mentioning it at a break that... We really, it's interesting, interesting that we don't have Paul here actually giving true teaching, you know, to counterbalance whatever they were falsely teaching. Uh, and my explanation for that is the, the beginning place that Paul starts with 2 Corinthians is you've got to deal with the Corinthians' relationship with the false teachers first before you get to right teaching. Because the thing is, if if they're going to continue to align with, you know, strongly align with these false teachers and they're listening to all this false teaching, Paul knows that they're not going to be able to hear right teaching in, in, in that sense. So that's why even the teaching that he does in the center part of this book is all about, you've got to start by choosing the right mission and the right ministers in order to get the right teaching. I know, I know that's an unsatisfactory answer in the sense that it, it doesn't say, okay, here are all the false doctrines they were teaching. We're just not told that. Evidently, the Holy Spirit didn't think that we needed to know that part of the deal the, because the emphasis of 2 Corinthians is that sometimes the beginning place in getting people to where they need to be is to get them the right kind of leader, the right kind of gospel person, rather than them being corrupted and taking off, taken off by a false teacher. And breaking them away from that false teacher is, is a beginning place. Now, it is by an appeal to right doctrine, you know, like in, in your context, if you're trying to help a, somebody break away from false teaching, you've got to kind of help them see that there's some fallacies here and that kind of thing. But, but, but a lot of it is sometimes separating them from the immediate context, if you can, if you can persuade them that it's not a healthy context. So that's, that seems to be Paul's strategy is to begin there. Because if they embrace him, they're going to be embraced. They already had heard the gospel. And, and so if they embrace him, they're going to be embracing his gospel. But he's got to start with them choosing the right side in that sense. Okay. How about one more? Any, anybody else? Anybody else? All right, then. Let's, uh, let's have a... Uh, 
did, did somebody else? Natasha, you look like you're okay. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. I, I will uh, turn it over to Natasha. How is that? So we just really want to say thank you. I know um, it's always amazing. Can I have Pat come yeah, up here with Pat. me, please? It's always amazing um, the impartation that somebody gives. You can read the book and, and everything, but the impartation that you guys just brings, uh, I think, around the, the love of God. I think mm. the Father heart of God just oozes out of you. And I just really want to say thank you for that. We decided because uh, George loves, um, you know, sports, we're going to give him real sports, hey? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I am yeah. so excited. This is a rugby shirt. Oh, I don't I... know if it's the latest, but it was the prettiest one for me. <laughs> I, am, I am jazzed about that. Listen, oh, wow. And Pat, we just gave you a scarf of an African scarf. So, <laughs> so we just really want I want to say thank you very, very much oh. for coming and being part of us. I also want to say thank you for the investment that you made, not just in South Africa, but in your own life. I know, the, I always love, and I never got to hear your story, around how you had to study and the sacrifices that the family had to make to actually get that doctorate degree and all mm. of the, the studies that goes with that. So I just, mm. we, we want to honor that in you. Well, thank today. you. And I, I can tell you where I will wear this. I go, I ride my bike over almost every day to go exercise over at a workout area right near our home. And this is my new shirt to wear when I, when I go over there. So I'll be bearing the flag of South Africa there. Uh, don't know how that will go over in Canada, but uh, we're going to... Yeah, you so know. that's a rugby shirt. You must remember, that's a rugby shirt. I, I know, shirt. I know. You, America knows nothing. It's not the same thing. Well, I tell you who's <laughs> going to love it. Uh, my.